Hi, this is Sarah Grady. Welcome to another episode of The Estruin Gradient. The Estruin Gradient is a podcast of the North and South Rivers Watershed Association and the Mass Bay's South Shore region. You can get in touch with The Estruin Gradient on Twitter, at Estruin Gradient, or uh, at the NSRWA's Twitter, at NSRWA. Or you can also send me an email at Sarah at nsrwa.org. And uh, I'm always looking for topics and questions, so definitely feel free to get in touch with me. Today, I'm going to be talking about blue mussels. You've probably encountered blue mussels on the menu at a favorite seafood restaurant. They're usually served steamed up with some wine and garlic. But have you encountered them out in their natural environment? Blue mussels are a bivalve, so they have two shells. They're related to other favorite bivalves, like clams and oysters, but they live in a slightly different place. They prefer hard substrate, so you'll find them in the intertidal. Um, you'll often see their uh, the baby mussels, which are called spat, on rocks as kind of a coating of little black dots. Um, and those are the baby blue mussels that uh, we hope would grow up into bigger mussels. Things like clams and oysters tend to live in more of a mudflat habitat. You can identify a blue mussel by its bluish, blackish, sometimes a little bit brownish shell. And it's one of three species of mussels that live in Massachusetts. So the blue mussel is Middleus edulis. Uh, it's sometimes also called the common mussel or the edible mussel. We also have the horse mussel, Modiolus modiolus, as well as the ribbed mussel, Gucensia demissa. And you'll see this last mussel often in salt marshes, and it has a special relationship with uh, salt marsh cordgrass, with Spartina alterniflora, and lives in the edges of the salt marshes. Blue mussels live in the intertidal, and they attach themselves to the rocks using a very strong thread-like anchor, which is called a bissel thread. And the mussel generates it as a liquid, and then it connects to the rock using that thread. So it kind of will stick its foot out of the shell and anchor itself. And those threads are very, very strong. So you'll see those mussels kind of stuck together in a clump. And that is where we usually see them. In the river, we haven't seen as many of them for quite a while. Um, and there are a couple of reasons for that. They've declined significantly since the 1980s. The decline was initiated by a somewhat limited commercial harvest. There are some anecdotes about mussel beds actually being torched with gasoline to favor other shellfish. But in more recent years, we've come to believe that things like invasive crab predation have started to play a role in reducing the abundance of mussels in the rivers. My name is Callie Bianchi. I'm a junior in college, and I started working with the North and South River Watershed Association in 2014, I think. Um, and I live along the North River, so that's sort of how I got connected. How did you end up focusing on blue mussels? Well, it originally actually started with the green crabs, which 
um, is an invasive species in the river that I grew up catching. And Sarah ended up telling me um, that they're invasive and they're actually really bad for the environment because they eat shellfish like mussels that are good for the marsh. And so that's how I got interested in the mussel project. We had an experiment to see which size mussels the crabs were eating. And we basically had jars with holes in them that we hung off the edge of a floating dock. So it sort of simulated a live well where um, the mussels and crabs would stay alive. And then we had a different sized mussel with a similar size of crab in each jar. And we sort of checked them. I think we checked them once a day or twice a day to see um, if the crab had eaten the size mussel. If they can crack through the shell, they sort of rip them apart and eat them. Our data showed that once the mussels were about one inch in size, the crab usually couldn't crack through the shell. So they had a better chance of survival. Do you see a lot of blue mussels around the North River? I definitely see some at low tide looking on rocks and stuff, but not as many as I would think. And I definitely see way more crabs. (laughs) They used to grow sort of on the side of the floating dock. I have a lot of fond memories of the (laughs) mussel project. I think it was a really great way for me as someone who grew up on the river as like my fun thing going to the spit or going swimming with my brothers or um, just sort of enjoying the river like that, I found it really important for me to connect to it on a more environmental level and understand what was going on and the ways that I could help this watershed that is, has been such a big part of my life. So I think it was also just really enjoyable to spend my summer job out on the dock, um, putting crabs in jars and just being out on the water was a really great experience. But I also learned so much. And you also have done some work on green crabs too. We also did a project trapping green crabs to see if we could make any dent in the amount of crabs that we were seeing in the river. So I had 10 traps, I think, off our dock in different locations, sort of in inlets in the marsh and more in deeper water. And I would open them up, um, count how many crabs are in there, look for any crabs with eggs. I mean, for the most part, they just keep coming back. But the data, I think, showed a slight decrease in the amount we were trapping. But obviously, that's not most sustainable way to get the crabs out of the marsh. It was definitely incredible to see just how many of these things there were. Every time I had a trap of 500, I would have another one two days later. And then just finding out what we could possibly do with them in order to get them out of the river was a fun challenge. But it seems like there's some efforts across New England to try eating them or um, using them in compost sustainably. I mean, it just seems like the crabs are infinite and there needs to be a lot of work done there. But I think if you're able to get those mussels of that size and that the crabs can't eat, then that's the best way to sort of restore that part of the ecosystem. So why would we care? Well, blue mussels are an important food source for migratory birds. Food for migrating shorebirds is one of the most important parts of their long-distance migrations. Birds like terns will rely on small fish like sand lance or silversides, but a lot of migrating shorebirds need the benthic or, or bottom organisms that live in the intertidal and in the tidal flats. And one of these is the red knot, and it is a federally threatened species that relies heavily on blue mussel spat as a primary food source while it migrates south. So it's possible that the decline of the blue mussel due to crabs like the green crab and also the Asian shore crab may be contributing to fewer red knots being observed 
at the mouth of the North and South Rivers. Mass Audubon has been monitoring red knots and other shorebirds during their fall migration at the third and fourth cliffs since 2015 at the mouth of the rivers. Hi, I'm Gina Pertel. I am uh, Mass Audubon's program manager for community science and coastal resilience for the Southeast region. How did you get involved in this blue mussel project? Well, it's an interesting story. So Mass Audubon has operated the Coastal Waterbird Program for several decades now, and it's helped to see uh, the population of the uh, endangered piping plover move from just 500 birds in the state of Massachusetts up to over a thousand. And so we're excited to be able to contribute to uh, this success. So we've been doing this coastal waterbird monitoring. And one of our the beaches that we uh, were asked to conduct this work for is at Fourth Cliff, which is owned by the U.S. Air Force Base. And it's wonderful that the Air Force is really committed to making sure that the land that they manage is serving multiple purposes. Not only is it uh, the recreational site for Air Force servicemen and families, but it's also a natural resource site. And there's nesting beaches for piping plovers, but there's also habitat for other critters. And with our, through our partnership with you, Sarah, it became obvious that uh, there's the, the potential to enhance the habitat for the migratory birds as well. So these are birds that nest in the far north, but on their way to the far south, they pass along the shores of Massachusetts and and touch down to to fuel up and uh, whatever mollusks or worms or fish or whatever serves their species, whatever that species eats, they are using Massachusetts as as a refueling stop. And that's what's so wonderful and important about the migration season is we're kind of a funnel for many different species that we only see for a week or two in the entire year. So the red knot, which is a rapidly declining bird species, it's a little sandpiper, beautiful little bird, nests way up in the Arctic and and uh, they're an example of one, just one of these birds. And so the fact that we have a willing landowner, the U.S. Air Force is willing to enhance the habitat. We're really hopeful that we can be part of growing this population of endangered bird in part by growing uh, a, a shellfish that has, is in decline. Back in uh, 2014, it was determined that they had reached a precipitous point of decline and they really needed the help of the Endangered Species Act and the laws that protect them um, once they're listed in order for them to hold where they're at and in fact restore that population uh, to previous numbers. So I studied horseshoe crabs when I was in graduate school, and there's been pretty good public attention paid to the role of horseshoe crab eggs in fueling the northern migration of the red knot. But I think there's been less attention paid to how those birds fuel up for their southern trip. I think that's an excellent point because we know that the red knots 
it's been estimated that 90% of the entire red knot population, the subspecies, the subpopulation that uses our uh, eastern corridor, 90% of them stop at Delaware Bay to eat the horseshoe crab eggs. But that's, only, that's a very seasonal thing. That's in the spring, in the summer. And by fall, when they're heading south, horseshoe crabs aren't laying more eggs. On the southbound trip, they need to be consuming critters that are uh, available in September, uh, even into October, late August. Uh, that's the span of time that they'll be um, that that we see them passing through. So, what's what's there? What is abundant then? Well, hopefully, it's going to be critters that were productive, and now there's lots of little larvae or or young, you know, year or two old, still small enough to be um, consumed by these sandpipers. So sandpipers are distinct and easily, you know, observed because they have a long skinny bill, but many of them have sensory organs at the end of their bill. So this bill is perfect. It's like a, a set of chopsticks that they can probe down into the sand or the mud and they can feel around and pluck out what little tasty morsel is down in there. And they, they've got the right equipment, like those chopsticks, but they also have sensory or, uh, organs at the end that help them say, this is a muscle, a little tiny muscle, versus this is a stone. The focus of this discussion is really on migratory red knots and other migratory birds and the role that mussels play as a food source for them when they're migrating south to Tierra del Fuego. But I know that Coastal Waterbird Program works on many other kinds of shorebirds. What can people do to help protect some of those other species of shorebirds? I, that's an excellent question um, and so important uh, because honestly, it's going to take everybody's contribution of effort in order for us to reach a point of stability for so many of these species. When a species is pretty dependent on coastal habitat, it puts them in direct exposure to human activities. Think of all the things that we do on the coast. We recreate, we take our boats, we go beach combing in the winter, we sit on the sand in the summer and go swimming, not to mention all the commercial activities that we have. So all the activities we do in the water um, that, that mean that sometimes pollutants come up on shore. We love to live near the water. We like to put our, our homes near the water. We often build roads and, and bridges and things that uh, affect the coastline. So all these activities really put, uh, put the migratory birds that use these coastal habitats in potential conflict with us. So it's really important for us to be, be aware, number one, and then to be responsible stewards, to think outside of our own use of that same resource. In addition to providing important foraging for red knots and other migratory shorebirds, blue mussel beds also act to stabilize shorelines. 
As storms increase in frequency and strength due to climate change and rising sea levels, it's important to protect our shorelines as much as we can. Because they are a filtering organism, they have a positive impact on water quality and the ecology of our estuary, and they also are another local shellfish resource. So what is our plan? Well, we're partnering with the Air Force at Fourth Cliff and Mass Audubon to do a big mussel restoration. We're going to be seeking docks all around the watershed, and when they're taken out of the water in the fall and the mussels on them would otherwise die, we're going to try to strip those mussels off the docks and then transplant them to Fourth Cliff. So we will see how that goes, and I hope that you will follow along and possibly even volunteer to help us transport mussels. This has been The Estruin Gradient. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. You can get in touch with me through Twitter, at Estuarine Grady, or through the NSRWA's Twitter, at NSRWA, or you can send me an email at sarah at nsrwa.org.